welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I am Jen Pan, here with Kale Brooks. Kale, what's new? How are you? Uh, I'm good, just chilling, you know. Just um, Actually, I had COVID last week, so I'm getting over that. So um, I've been- Struggling ver- along. Yeah, I've been very like uh, strategically muting coughs. So, mm-hmm. you know, you will not hear a cough in this stream, I promise right, you. Right. Uh, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing okay. Um, I don't know if people noticed, but we were off last week. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, there there was some sad news last week also, which is that uh, the great writer Barbara Ehrenreich uh, died. Um, right. We're both fans. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you have any quick thoughts, Kale, but uh, we felt like we should say something uh, since, since Barbara Ehrenreich, I think, has been a huge influence, not just on us personally, but obviously the broader left. Yeah, and rightfully, um, you know, while most of the world was mourning the queen, we were mourning the real queen. Our queen. <laughs> Our, the, yeah, the left's queen, truly, yeah. actually. Um, yeah, but Barbara obviously was a journalist. She was a prolific author. She was a thoroughly committed political activist who spent much of her life, much of her writing, trying to expose the cruelty of modern capitalism um, and highlighting the needs and the humanity of the poor. Yeah. She also wrote extensively on healthcare as well as gender. Um, she was like a socialist feminist in the best sense of both of those labels. Um, her most important work includes Nickel and Dime, Fear of Falling, Bait and Switch, Bright Sided, Hearts of Men, um, the recently released Natural Causes, um, and of course, uh, something that has probably featured pretty prominently throughout what we do here is uh, her writing on the professional managerial class. Um, I actually came into contact with Barbara's writing uh, because of Nickel and Dimed, which mm-hmm. was assigned because of a high school English class. Um, so I wasn't like a great English student by any means. I was fine, but like I didn't always keep up with the reading. Uh, but I very clearly remember reading that entire book and uh, it actually affected me quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and as she and others have pointed out, uh, the book, you know, which is dealing, it's like detailing her experience trying to live off of minimum wage jobs. Um, it was pretty much primarily written for middle class people to actually have a better understanding of the realities of working class life in America. Mm-hmm. So I hope that, you know, me and others, you know, we, our politics of, you know, middle class Bernie bros, uh, hopefully, you know, owes a great deal to, to you know, our public high schools assigning Barbara Ehrenreich to us. We um, love public education, as yeah. did Barbara Ehrenreich. Yeah. What's, um, I, I, I do want to say about Nickel and Dimed, like, so that came out in 2001. And um, as you, as you, you know, noted, it is a, her first person account of basically showing the impossibility of trying to live on a low wage job in America. And, uh, you know, that impossibility is obviously uh, obvious to anybody who works those jobs. But I think that's something that is important to remember is like the mainstream media and like even huge parts of the left were not talking about that in 2001. Like this is, this is, you know, obviously way before Bernie Sanders, this is before Occupy Wall Street. This is just really a few years after welfare reform. Uh, So she was really, I think if you were, were to read the book now, you might be like, and you had never encountered it before, you might be like, oh, this is really obvious or like, oh, this isn't really like anything new. And that is true in a sense, but it was really groundbreaking for the time. And like you said, particularly for a middle class and media audience. Uh, and I think that that cannot be discounted. And, you know, I just want to say, like, obviously, Barbara Ehrenreich was incredibly prolific and wrote extremely well and astutely across a number of subjects. But for me, uh, when I think of her work kind of as a whole, 
what it is to me is just a, a, a really like sharp and total chronicle of the disintegration of the American middle class under capitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that comes through in everything she writes, not just the books that were specifically about work like Nickel and Dimed and Bait and Switch uh, or even Fear of Falling, uh, but also her works like Bright Sided and Natural Causes, which kind of get at the cultural weirdness of what it means for society to be collapsing under capitalism, but at the mm -hmm. same time, capitalists trying to come up with trying to sell you ways of coping right, right and right. like there's just there was just no one like her and um you know obviously i am extremely sad that she is not going to be around anymore to keep writing like this uh but i do also want to say that you know part of her writing natural causes was to kind of look at the phenomenon of death and skewer the mindfulness and wellness and like keeping people alive industry as as i think she would call it uh so that's all to say that Although I'm very sad that she's no longer with us, uh, I think she would be the first to say that it's not a tragedy uh, in, in its own kind of way, right? Yeah. And like, I mean, like you're saying, uh, you know, neoliberalism is still with us. So mm -hmm. you should be reading all of Barbara Ehrenreich's yeah. work as like probably one of the, right. the best critics of this era of right. like... I also want to say on that point, though, something else that I think is really interesting and unique about Barbara Ehrenreich and something that I think is more important to me as time goes on is she would actually very rarely use words like neoliberalism mm. if she did them at all, uh, right. or if she used them at all. She was uh, she never dumbed anything down. Everything that she wrote is incredibly smart, but it is intended for people who aren't already converted. And I right. think that that's something that, you know, the left... Uh, right now, um, oftentimes us included, like really struggle with, you know, like I say neoliberalism all the time. And I just kind of take it for granted that everybody knows what I'm talking about. And I'm sure that everybody watching this show does. Uh, but I think something that was truly remarkable about Barbara Ehrenreich was not just that she was very funny and brilliant stylist, but also that she, like I said, wrote to people who weren't already converted, and I think did a great job of converting. Yeah, I, I think that's extremely well put. Um... So, well, we miss Barbara. Um, and again, I hope people go back to her work because I, I really do think she is kind of an exceptional model for for being like a both a, you know, an intellectual, but also like a committed socialist. So mm -hmm. agreed. All right. Well, read Barbara Ehrenreich. Uh, do yeah. that right now. <laughs> and uh, and what else do we got on today's show today, Jen? On today's show, um, <clears throat> speaking of critics of the professional managerial class, we have our friend Catherine Liu, plus uh, Jacobin film cr critic Eileen Jones. Mm -hmm. They're going to be talking about uh, why culture why culture is bad now and, and, and wh when did it die? When did it go wrong? We're going to uh, so get to the bottom of it finally. We're, you're you're going to have a definitive answer. <laughs> uh, that's going to be a fun conversation. Stay tuned for that. Uh, I'm also talking to our friend Renee Rojas about the uh, uh, sort of sort of less good news, I guess the the recent yeah. uh, flop of the Chilean constitution. He'll have some comments on that, um, and I will be making a few comments of my own on the rise of fake and pseudo unions, uh, which I think we'll be seeing more of now that the labor movement is, you know, again incredibly popular. We've been seeing a lot of new organizing activity. All of that is good, but beware the fake union. Yeah, don't fall for it. Uh, All right, well, let's dive in, yes? Sounds good, let's do it. 
So I am now joined by Rene Rojas. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Human Development at SUNY Binghamton. He's, of course, also on the editorial board of Catalyst, and he has been on the show many times before and has written for Jacobin about the Chilean presidential election and Chilean politics. Uh, Rene, great to see you. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you again. So obviously, the big news out of Chile uh, in, in recent weeks is that a majority of Chileans, uh, unfortunately, voted to reject a proposed constitution, which was a uh, sort of sweeping and transformative document that I think a lot of people were really hoping uh, was, was going to go forward. Um, I, I want to start by just asking you, what was exactly in this constitution? Because I think that there was a lot of excitement on the left about it. Uh, uh, so maybe you could go through and, and, and kind of tell us what exactly exactly was in it. And then, uh, I, uh, you know, the, the obvious follow-up question is, given that Chilean voters recently supported Boric in the presidential election, and uh, prior to that, I believe, had had voted to overhaul the prior constitution, uh, why did this new progressive constitution fail to pass? Yeah, well, that's the big question that yeah. everyone on the left and beyond really is asking themselves right now. But let's start with the, the first question you, you asked about the contents of the the draft um, that you know was written by the assembly mm -hmm. uh, by a, a new constitutional convention that was elected um, almost two years ago now. Um, one way to describe the contents of the the draft of this proposed charter is that it it was just too much. It included far too many articles. It included mention of way too many rights and protections, and that led to uh, both confusion and suspicion, I would say. Mm. Um, overall, I think you can divide the types of um, guarantees and rights and protections that were included into two big categories. And the distinction actually, in my view, is crucial for understanding why um, Chileans rejected the draft. Um, on one side, there are a number of articles that were written in to protect basic um, social uh, needs um, mm -hmm. and to provide basic um, provision, or, yeah, social provision to cover um, these basic material needs like healthcare, like housing, like education, like retirement um, or pensions, I should say. Mm -hmm. uh, the Constitution did a pretty good job of um, guaranteeing that the state, right, would offer these protections and these these goods and that they would be universally available to um, Chileans. On the other hand, right, um, in a way that many didn't necessarily see as contrasting with the first um, set of, of rights and protections, the draft also included a number of narrower, you might want to call them identitarian or social justice uh, type um, articles referring to, to social justice um, issues of all types. Um, but mainly, I think, what was highlighted, right, were uh, gender rights and protections, um, ethno-national rights and protections, um, rights uh, for nature and protections against environmental um, harm for people. Um, but that were presented, I would say, not necessarily in universalist form, but presented as special protections for people suffering special narrower types of oppression. Mm -hmm. um, and I think 
what happened both over the course of the convention, which met for a year um, from July of last year to July of this year, right? And since then, since the campaign um, for the plebiscite, the former set of rights and protections got totally um, eclipsed by and mm -hmm. overshadowed and really uh, drowned out by discussion and moralizing over the second set of rights. Hmm. And in my view, that more than anything is what turned off ordinary working Chileans. As you, as you pointed out, in um, the opening plebiscite, the first referendum in which uh, Chileans were asked whether they wanted to um, change the constitution, uh, dispense with the 1980 constitution that was imposed under dictatorship, but has reigned ever since, and write a new one, you know, 80 per, oh, nearly 80%, 78% of Chileans said, yes, we want a new constitution. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of public fervor for a constitutional overhaul. In addition, when they were asked if they wanted to, um, or whom they wanted to write the constitution, they said, we don't trust the old political class. We want to vote in new representatives to draft the constitution, right? 80% mm -hmm. of people voted on those two points in favor of change. And this time around, only 38% did. So something happened in the interim, in the ensuing months, right, that really um, inverted really the, 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 the national mood um, and public opinion. And I think, you know, we can go into how it happened, but I think mm -hmm. more than anything, what people um, decided and what they rejected, right, was um, the, both the way the, the constituent assembly behaved and both the politics within it and the types of issues it prioritized but also again as i said earlier um the 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 content itself which tended to um bury right basic universal rights and protections under you know an array of um lofty and specially designed uh, protections um that chileans didn't seem were directed um, at them or were intended to promote um, their their uh, well-being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I that, that's really interesting that you make this distinction between, I guess, the kind of universalist uh, economic bread and butter side of the Constitution and then these more specialized or like identitarian concerns, because obviously this is a conversation that the American left has all the time. Right. And yeah. I think that what you hear a lot on the left is that uh, if if you don't sort of include or even center those social justice concerns, then you're going to be alienating very marginalized people in some way, or you're going to be throwing them under the bus. That's that's a kind of criticism that I hear all the time. And I want to bring that up in the context of uh, the Chilean constitution, because at least in some of the initial reports that I've seen, and, and you probably know more, so maybe you can correct me on this, uh, but it looks like uh, a lot of indigenous voters, indigenous groups uh, voted to reject this constitution, which ostensibly was written with all of these protections for these groups in mind, right? And I also saw that that a lot of high poverty areas in Chile also voted to reject, again, a constitution that was ostensibly created to sort of enshrine protections of these groups and, you know, uh, deliver them more rights and benefits. Uh, so, so uh, again, I, I suppose this is just to ask uh, you to expand a little bit on those comments. Um, what explains this disjunct? I mean, that's, that's very interesting, I think. 
Yeah. You can add to that the fact that a, a significant majority of women mm. right, also rejected the Constitution. Right, and right. This has been you know, hailed as a model um, for a feminist um, constitution that guarantees parity across the board, across social realms and institutions. And, and in spite of that, women also rejected. My, my understanding is not that people are rejecting those special protections or those narrower kind of social justice oriented provisions in the constitution. It's not that Chileans um, are just, you know, sexist and they cannot have, right, parity right. in right. society. Or, or, or most Chileans who are, you know, mestizo mixed um, reject indigenous rights or special protections for indigenous communities per se. I don't think that's what's going on, even though you're starting to hear a lot of this um, come out in Chile saying, look, we're just a conservative society. People on the left are starting to say this. Voters are just backward and they don't know what's in their best interest. And so they reject these things. Um, I don't think that's what it is. I think rather when those rights, right, are, um, as I said, as I described earlier, right, when they receive all of the attention, when the proponents of the new constitution constantly, right, pointed out that we had to defend all um, social justice issues in, a, in very, as I said earlier, kind of moralizing terms, um, people started to feel that if that was the direction this was going in, it could not guarantee the broad, you know, class-wide universal um, demands that people have been making since the rebellion in 2019 mm -hmm. and before, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not that people ordinarily um, place these things in competition with one another and they think they're mutually exclusive, right? It's that this time around proponents for the new constitution weren't able to convince Chileans, right, that the best way to actually um, guarantee those more particular set of rights is by um, prioritizing universal right. provision of protections and, and goods. And so what happened is that, you know, Chileans became confused, demoralized, and increasingly bitter. Mm -hmm. You have to imagine a population, remember, this is Chile, right? The poster child for deregulation, liberalization, mm -hmm. for the entire neoliberal turn right, where social provision has been commodified extensively and where most working people have been facing conditions of, of really deep-seated material insecurity for decades, right? And so when the proponents of the new constitution um, sideline in many ways in the politics and the campaigning, sideline the universal provisions that people are clamoring for mm -hmm. and insist on everyone getting on board and um, sacrificing, you know, this kind of language that was used um, to to win these more these narrower rights. I think people concluded, look, these folks, these representatives, and this draft, they are not, um, they do not have my 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 best interest in in mind. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, you know, again, I I don't think that this means that Chileans are kind of by nature, sexist, racist, right. right? That's not it at all. It's that I think very reasonably, they um, the way that this all uh, played out um, promoted very serious 
um, suspicions mm -hmm. uh, on the part of ordinary working Chileans that this charter really would defend our basic class-wide universal rights. Right. Yeah, so I, I want to talk a little bit more about how the process kind of broke down, um, because something else I've been sort of hearing in these uh, postmortems of the Constitution is a lot of people uh, have been focusing on uh, the the right in Chile, uh, the organized right. And, you know, I think a lot of people have been looking at the kind of propaganda and or, you know, misinformation mm -hmm. campaign that the right waged against the Constitution. Uh, to what extent is the failure of this Constitution a product of the right, of the Boric administration, um, or the activist left, as, as you've been hinting at? Yeah. Well, clearly, it's a combination of everything, mm -hmm. right? And what we have to do on the left is um, kind of tease these apart and then also um, rank them in a certain way right. in terms of, you know, what was more or what, what had a deeper causal effects on, on the outcome and what we can actually address, right? Yeah. Um, from, from the, the left. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, propaganda and manipulation, all the fake news, both in uh, regular, ordinary, traditional corporate media and in social media, uh, did have an effect, right? Just to give you some examples, uh, there were two big, big topics that uh, came up over and over again, and that, re that really, I think, fueled people's confusion and suspicion. Uh, one was what we've already mentioned, um, the uh, rights that the Constitution would have conferred onto indigenous uh, populations and the refounding of Chilean society as a plurinational um, country where indigenous, especially the Mapuche population, would have a special set of institutions and protections. And then the other thing was uh, uh, housing, ironically, mm -hmm. right? Because the Constitution guaranteed housing and propaganda um, uh, actually was successful in convincing ordinary people that this meant that their houses would actually be taken away um, and they would become public property, right? That the state would then decide how to distribute somewhat arbitrarily, uh, right? Was kind of the, the message. Those two um, kind of types of propaganda hit, hit home and um, did ha have an effect on people. However, I don't, Obviously, they didn't do so in a vacuum. I don't mm -hmm. think that those types of um, media manipulations and those, that type of fake news, right, um, uh, was automatically going to resonate among working Chileans. After all, if you think back to um, the time of the opening plebiscite, and I think it was October of 2020, all of that was in effect as well. Mm -hmm. you know, there was this huge propaganda campaign saying, you know, Chile is going to turn into Venezuela, um, mm -hmm. uh, this whole Chile-suela um, <laughs> um, theme that, that came up then. And if you want to end up like Venezuela, where millions of people are fleeing, where society is broken down, where no institutions work, where there's an you know, exorbitant poverty level, then vote for the Constitution. You know, those scare tactics and that fear mongering was present then, but it didn't work. Mm -hmm. Right. So the real question for me is not um, just to to try to measure the impact of um, propaganda this time around, but to understand why it worked, right, in, um, you know, last week, whereas it hadn't worked two years ago. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, my, one of my big concerns with the approach that, um, you know, tends to, to 
place a lot of emphasis on on the fake news and on the fear mongering is that ultimately it blames ordinary Chileans. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it says, look, um, for some reason or another, you know, Chileans are just susceptible to to this stuff, and um, they'll they'll always fall prey to it. Um, instead of concluding, or instead of focusing, redirecting re, uh, the analysis on what the left can do to make sure that people are somewhat um, inoculated, right, against what will inevitably be a propaganda of disinformation, uh, a campaign of propaganda and disinformation. Yeah, so I guess then, you know, that brings us to the question of what comes next, right? First of all, what what do you think this referendum, the outcome of this referendum sort of tells us about the state of the Chilean left at the moment? And uh, what does this all mean for the future of the Boric administration and what kinds of challenges, uh, you know, not just the administration, but the left in general will be facing going yeah. forward? We have to start from the recognition that this is just a massive blow, a massive defeat um, to the broader process of, of uh, change and of systemic reform that was underway to the Boric government and to the left more broadly. Mm -hmm. The vote, again, 62% um, of Chileans um, very clearly, unequivocally saying, this is not what we want. What the left did and what the left is offering right, is not what we want. Right. That amounts to a huge setback. Um, and we're only now, I think, starting to grapple with the magnitude of, of its consequences. Let me just start with um, what this might mean for the constituent process um, itself, mm -hmm. right? Um, there's debate now as to what will happen after all, you know, two years ago, 80% of Chileans said they wanted a new constitution. Um, it is kind of firmly established in Chilean society that the 1980 uh, constitution has, has lost legitimacy and, and people do not want it. So that leaves open the question, well, considering this defeat, um, how do we move forward in terms of constitutional reform? Um, and, you know, this debate is, is kind of raging among the political class um, as we speak. My uh, thoughts are that the Constitution, the current 1980 Constitution, will be reformed, mm -hmm. right? Um, there's no way that, gov the, you know, the Boric government and the entire uh, political class can avoid that. But given, again, the blow that we've just received, right, um, the right and the old centrist political class, which dominated Chilean politics from 1990 until very recently, Right has been some. Uh, they've been revived, and they're going to exert enormous influence, and they're going to um, also exercise veto power on any steps moving forward. And so they're probably going to ask for a mixed assembly that includes some elected representatives along with um, current uh, parliamentarians and a set of experts who will rewrite the constitution and then um, submit it again to a popular referendum. But of course, that means that all the reforms that Chileans have been out on the street for, or at least were, that they went into rebellion, you know, um, pursuing in, in, in 2019, um, all those reforms that had, again, been firmly placed on the agenda, the national agenda, will be watered down significantly. Mm -hmm. In terms of the Boric government, you know, I think it's it's quite open. Any anywhere from him, you know, just being the government being dead in the water, and just you know seeing how he somehow rides out the remainder of his tenure, which is you know th 
three plus years mm-hmm. um, to him being severely straitjacketed and shackled by again this um, uh, old tradition, the, the political class of the old order, which has regained confidence, which is trying to reassert itself, um, and now has the backing of this result um, with which to do it. Mm-hmm. So I think right now Boric is going to have to turn toward the center. He's already reshuffled his um, cabinet. He's brought in um, people from the old center left. Um, and they're going to have, I think, um, really uh, primary influence o- over his program from now on. Once again, that means um, severely moderating, even um, abandoning um, core reforms that he campaigned on. I think lastly, there's the question of, if we still have a little time, what this means for the, the broader left. Yeah. And it's it's tough because I'm not sure the left has um, drawn the, the, the right conclusions mm-hmm. about why this occurred. There Again, as I said earlier, there is an important segment that comes out of this activist, this middle class activist layer, right? These so you might want to, you know, I don't want to sound too pejorative, but you might call them social justice warriors, right? That have a lot of influence because they rose out of real mass movements mm-hmm. um, over the past 10 years. There are segments among them that, as I said earlier, blame ordinary Chileans. I think Chileans are either backward mm-hmm. or they're just somehow way too susceptible to uh, right wing propaganda. Well, if that's your read, then your conclusion is we have to go out there and do even more of what we did. We have to preach at people you know, even with with louder, stronger voices to convince them that they're wrong and that these, um, you know, reforms, the way we have um, formulated them are the way to go. That's a that's a dead end. That's a losing strategy, which will only um, result in uh, a further weakening of the left. Um, of course, the the Boric, I think what, what Boric has concluded that he has attacked to the center is also in, in, in the longer haul, right, a dead end um, strategy, because all it will do is reinforce the very insecurities, the very um, problems that led to the mass rebellion in 2019 in the first place. And I think there's some there's awareness of that. Um, what I think the left should do is to um, double down on its message, but not the kind of identitarian social justice issues rather the universalist causes that um, it did partially right put on the agenda and fight for over these last three years that's the way to win over um, you know huge swaths of the working population that went from approving a new constitution mm-hmm. to rejecting it and that doesn't mean of course abandoning the as we were saying earlier these more particular um, uh, fights against these more particular forms of oppression doesn't mean abandoning the fight against um, sexism and um, doesn't it doesn't mean abandoning the fights for uh, protections and rights for the Mapuche population whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But what it does entail is going out there, recognizing people's needs, recognizing what people have been demanding and um, showing through right political fight that um, these two sets of issues are not incompatible with one with yeah. one another. Now, some people have concluded it's the, 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 it's too much of an uphill climb. You know, after all, as you said, there's data that says that 
um, among the poorest Chileans, 25%, only 25% voted uh, for and uh, up to 75% voted to reject this, right? Well, that seems to mean it's really gonna be hard um, inserting ourselves into these communities, into these neighborhoods, into these work sites, right? To work with people um, um, and, and, and win them over to a kind of material materialist, universalist uh, left. But I want to just say one thing um, as we, we approach the end of this conversation. Um, the 25% uh, figure that's been thrown out there a lot, I think is somewhat misleading. Um, the, the stat actually is the following, that um, among the poorest towns or townships, comunas as they're called, the municipalities, if you'll, in, in Chile, among the poorest ones, you know, the average was that 25% of, of residents there voted against. But most of those towns, those comunas, are actually small provincial um, municipalities. Um, you know, in in either the the, the south central or the far um, southern districts of of the country. The fact of the matter is that most of Chile's working class is concentrated around the capital mm -hmm. and around the the kind of middle region that includes ports like. Um, Valparaiso, which is the main port, and also San Antonio, um, uh, another very important port through which most of Chile's, most of what Chile sells to the world um, gets transported. Um, in, in places like that, so in the big comunas in, in Santiago's metropolitan region, these I'm talking about townships that concentrate most of, Chilean, of the Chilean working class, right? 50% uh, voted for approval, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think there are, you know, more, there are leading uh, segments of, of, of the working population, if you will, um, who, uh, you know, in, 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 in large numbers and significant numbers, right, are still on board. They still want a reform. And despite all the confusion, despite all the, the suspicion and mistrust that the constituent assembly and the campaign process um, uh, provoked in them are still behind a reform program, right? And so for me, that's where the left has to be. Mm -hmm. We yeah. you know, have to recognize their, meet, their needs, meet them, right? And take them, their, their, their grievances seriously, right? And, and allow ourselves to be disciplined by what they're, they're demanding, the way they see the world and not the way college-educated activists see the world. Right. Well said. Uh, Rene Rojas, again, is an editor over at Catalyst, and we will link some of his writing on Chile below. Rene, thank you so much for your time. That was great. Great to see you as always. Always. Yeah, it's a pleasure. All right. So I will be back in a moment to talk about the rise of fake uh, pseudo unions. But first, a quick message from our sponsor, Verso Books. Join the Verso Book Club and support the future of radical publishing. Subscribers get every book that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website for as long as you're a subscriber. Join in September and get your first month free. This month's selections are Cannibal Capitalism, How Our System is Devouring Democracy, Care, and the Planet, and What We Can Do About It by Nancy Fraser, an analysis of contemporary capitalism's insatiable appetite and a rallying cry for everyone who wants to stop it from devouring our world. Self-Defense, A Philosophy of Violence by Elsa Dorland, a look across the global history of the left tracing the politics, philosophy, and ethics of self-defense. The 2023 Versal Radical Diary and Weekly Planner, a week-to-view planner for keeping track of the year ahead. 
and Microverses, Observations from a Shattered Present by Dylan Riley, over a hundred short essays inviting us to think about society and social theory in new ways. Become a member today at versobooks.com. Let's start with the good news. Right now, public approval of unions is the highest it's been in the U.S. in nearly 60 years. 71% of Americans say they approve of labor unions, which, as AFL-CIO President Liz Schuler recently pointed out, means that unions are even more popular than hot dogs. There's also been a lot of excitement around new organizing activity in the service sector, which has been a notoriously difficult area for organized labor to break into. Workers at chains that have never previously been unionized, including Trader Joe's, Chipotle, and of course, Starbucks, have all held successful union votes this year. To date, over 200 Starbucks locations have won union elections. But all the attention on labor organizing means that there will inevitably also be cynical or misguided attempts to ride the wave. For instance, last week, a group of Etsy sellers launched a new seller's guild that describes itself as being, quote, modeled after a union as much as possible, with the same goals as a more traditional union and other organized labor movements. When you go to this group's website, you can find an announcement that reads, Etsy sellers aren't just folksy crafters and side hobbyists, we're workers. The group says that they hope to do things like organize independent sellers, challenge Etsy's fee increases, and, quote, speak with one unified voice for the interests of indie sellers to the media, legislators, and the general public. So that's all well and good, and these Etsy merchants are, of course, free to form any kind of advocacy group they want, but make no mistake, this is not a union and has nothing to do with worker power, at least not in any meaningful way. In fact, a spokesperson for the Guild has even said that they'd eventually like to help indie sellers hire their own employees, meaning that the so-called union is apparently willing to represent both workers and bosses. It's heartening that in this moment, more and more people are inspired by unions and thinking of themselves as workers. But when we start to muddle exactly what a union is and what it does, or when we decide that anything can count as a union as long as workers are involved, it makes it that much harder to recognize that not all workers' groups are created equal. Real unions have a certain kind of leverage that more informal advocacy groups don't, which is that they enable workers to check the immense power of employers through collective bargaining agreements. Something like the Etsy Sellers Guild can function as an occasional pressure group, but doesn't fundamentally alter the balance of power between capital and labor. That said, a well-meaning but slightly confused Sellers Guild is far from the worst offender when it comes to warping what the labor movement is actually about. The most egregious example might be a venture capital-backed startup called Unit of Work that's trying to brand itself as an exciting new resource for workers who want to unionize their workplaces. Unit offers consulting and legal advice to workers who are trying to unionize, and so far they've helped two workplaces form unions, and they say that they're working with several others. But they're also clear that first and foremost, they're a money-making venture. According to an LA Times piece on Unit's model, quote, once a contract is in place, members of the new union can decide to pay Unit a monthly fee, similar to traditional union dues, to keep providing support. So first of all, let's be clear, the people who run Unit of Work might be genuine about wanting to help people organize their workplaces, but they offer literally nothing other than the exact same resources that a traditional union would. As it happens, you can also access these same resources for free from organizations like Labor Notes or the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee. 
What UNIT is doing, on the other hand, is trying to take advantage of low union density and a broad lack of information among the general public about the process of unionization to make money. And there's another interesting twist in the UNIT model even beyond their profit-seeking. They don't have any ties to the actually existing labor movement. Rather than working with national unions, UNIT is actively encouraging workers to form independent unions. This is explicitly by design. Tim Draper, one of the venture capitalists behind UNIT, who the LA Times describes as an outspoken critic of organized labor and public sector unions in particular, has said, quote, unit of work is making unions decentralized. That will be awesome. Centralized unions tend to restrain trade and government unions create bloated bureaucracy and poor government service on the whole. Government unions are the antithesis of a free country. So here's the problem. An independent union is one that is not affiliated with an established national union, such as the UAW or the SEIU, to name just two examples. Now, independent unions, of course, can be useful in some contexts, particularly when it comes to certain workplaces or sectors that established unions don't have the capacity or the desire to organize. But at the same time, when it comes to things like negotiating contracts and flexing political power, independent unions ultimately lack the leverage, experience, and financial resources that larger national unions have, which is probably why an anti-union venture capitalist like Tim Draper likes them so much. The so-called centralization that Draper opposes is just another word for a strong and cohesive labor movement. And this is key. Unions do much more than just improve working conditions for their members. By checking the power of employers, they're also capable of reducing inequality across society more broadly. And in the U.S., when union density has been high, the presence of unions has raised wages and improved workplace standards for all workers, even those who aren't in unions. In fact, one major reason why the American middle class has collapsed and average wages have been stagnant for decades is that union density has fallen dramatically after 40 years of attacks from capitalists like Tim Draper and right-wing politicians. We can and should celebrate the growing popularity of unions while also recognizing that not everything that calls itself pro-union is necessarily an asset to the labor movement. A fighting labor movement is distinctive in that it gives workers the leverage to force concessions from capital. And at the end of the day, that's something that pseudo-unions like the Etsy Guild or for-profit companies like UNIT that envision unions only as a series of small, decentralized shops will never be able to achieve. All right, so I am now here with two of my favorite cultural critics. You know Eileen Jones as the film critic at Jacobin, and of course, Catherine Liu, our friend Catherine Liu, author of the book Virtue Hoarders. It's great to see you both. Hi, lovely to see you. <laughs> so I wanted to have you both on to talk about uh, culture, broadly speaking, and uh, specifically, uh, I, I think that there's kind of a sense right now that culture is sort of worse than ever, right? And and that, you know, we're sort of um, inundated with, you know, uh, just, just the worst dregs of mass culture, pop culture, and just, you know, things aren't as good as they used to be. So I, I want to put this question over to both of you because, um, you know, there's part of me that absolutely agrees and feels that way as well. Mm. Um, I think movies right now are awful. 
But at the same time, I, you know, I also recognize that this sort of seems to be a feeling that like critics of every generation have, right? So, you know, our our patron saint of having a bad attitude, Theodore Adorno, famously complained about (laughs) movies in the 1940s. Uh, Mm -hmm. He has a famous line where he's like, every time I go to the cinema, I leave like even stupider than I was before or something like that, right? (laughs) I don't (laughs) know what he expected. Right. (laughs) That was just his question. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I I, want to open it up to both of you. Um, maybe maybe we'll start with you, Eileen, uh, yeah. because I, I do have to mention, I feel like if, you know, you, you write regularly for Jacobin, you do yes. movie reviews for Jacobin. And honestly, like I, I read all of them and most of your reviews are negative, right? Definitely. <laughs> yeah. But, so but so that's where we get into that tricky question of, of when did things get really bad? Right. Um, because in my adult lifetime and I come of age in the 80s, 1980s, that was a ghastly decade. And, and I feel like. I've always been used to trying to find the gems in the garbage dump of American <laughs> culture. So, so I think I've always felt that the vast majority of stuff produced is, is drag. Yeah. <laughs> With the exception, we occasionally have exciting movements. There's certainly always exciting filmmakers to be found. Mm-hmm. But the majority of stuff, you know, it's it's going to suck, especially 80s and on. For me, that's the decade when it all goes bad. My question is... When are you saying it was good? <laughs> it sounds like you have a, a more recent idea of when it was good. <laughs> well, I'm interested in you kind of um, uh-huh. marking the 80s as the turning point. Why do you uh-huh. think that is? Is it, I mean, is it just Reagan or? <laughs> oh, a, a huge amount, I think. Yeah. Uh, the doldrums begins in my memory anyway. Uh, it's This is personal. Um, MLA's setting in in the late 70s that, of course, I couldn't identify. I was too young, but I could already feel like a an increasing level of like hopelessness for anyone who wasn't a raging right winger mm-hmm. and things just were happening in cinema that were are noted in history as being this is probably not the best model we go into that horrible tentpole blockbuster model where everything gets thrown at a couple of huge releases per year and then that supports the rest of your slate but you know, this is the era of the agent coming to the fore and turning into a de facto producer. And mm-hmm. you've got packaging as your leading way to make movies in Hollywood. You have the bright spot of like independent film that lasts for a very short time where mm-hmm. it's exciting. New filmmakers coming from nowhere can make a film, take it to a festival, be discovered, have major careers, the Coen brothers, Spike Lee and many, many others. But it's such a little bright spot in a horrific decade when more and more movies start looking like television, for one thing, because Mm -hmm. the ancillary markets are where it's at. So people just start saying, why do a lovely composed detailed image? No one's going to see it on an airplane or whatever. So for me, at multiple levels, the 80s, everything goes into the damn toilet. Plus, Mm -hmm. we're coming out of a really exciting era film-wise. 60s, 70s is just an explosion of creativity. Catherine, when did culture die? Was it the 80s? Um, I have a different, I have a slightly different take, but I agree mostly with Eileen. I mean, part of my um, feeling about this is why does it matter that culture is bad? Mm-hmm. Um, we live in a bad world. That was also Adorno's thing. Like, there's, just a, right. there's no good art in a bad world. So, but um, I like to blame Harvey Weinstein and um, the Weinstein brothers because. When they picked up, um, when they decided that they could take independent film big is when the independent movement really um, started to cater to the Weinstein's taste, which was like halfway softcore porn, um, little exoticism, like Water for Chocolate was their big breakthrough. They were um, big rock and roll producers before Mm -hmm. then. And 
they were visionary in that they saw this opening in the 70s, 80s transition into um, where um, we were looking at more reactionary times, but there were also more yuppies looking for um, a kind of cosmopolitan, self-congratulatory point of view. And so they went to festivals, they picked up like Water for Chocolate, which whatever you think, I think it's a bad movie, but um, it's very exoticizing. It sort of sets the tone for like um, Latin American um, softcore cinema with mm -hmm. um, food and the exotic abuela. Mm -hmm. Like Encanto actually owes a lot to uh, like Water for Chocolate. And um, then everyone wanted to chase the Weinstein Brothers magical formula because they were able to take these small films promote the shit out of them and get Oscars. And so it really changed. I mean, Entourage does this great job of showing how Sundance, which did used to be a sort of incubator for, you know, visionary young filmmakers has become like a meat market for Harvey Weinstein, basically. Mm -hmm. um, one of the specific things that I think happens when you, you can see very, very carefully what happens is two people came out of independent film, Tarantino and Alison Anders, were discovered by Weinstein at the same time. I, my, you know, memory is going. So I think it was like early 90s. And um, um, Tarantino, of course, has this big blockbuster career. Alison Anders makes a beautiful film, Gas Lodging something. And gas food really, lodging. Gas food lodging, but realistic, working class, um, all female story. And, you know, to the wine scenes credit, they picked up, they bought that film and they released it. But then um, it, she was completely overshadowed by the, um, by the huge thing that Tarantino became. And so... Um, you know, we can blame the Weinstein brothers for a lot of things, but I think the destruction of independent art cinema um, is one of them. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, like media consolidation. Mm -hmm. Sony Pictures comes in and they start to buy up everything because the Japanese have all this extra cash. And then that sort of sets up the model for um, this kind of like seamless consolidation. Now, isn't like ESPN, Disney... ABC, like one giant conglomerate now. Right. Yeah. Um, the Disney more you have, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So the more you have um, this kind of oligarchy becoming the way and the being of um, um, cultural mass cultural production, the you know the worse it is. But to give a plug for certain things, not to say that they're all bad, is that recently I rewatched because I was writing. Um, the introduction to the German translation of my book, mm -hmm. um, Footloose from 1984, mm -hmm. which is really, really popular in Germany, especially post-Berlin Wall Germany. And that's actually an incredible piece of cinema. It was, it was kind of genius. So um, one, culture doesn't matter. How can you expect good culture in a bad mm -hmm. world? Two, it's the Weinstein's brother's fault. And three, <laughs> Footloose is an amazing movie. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I, I think something that you both are getting at is that there's kind of like a material basis to everything sucking, right? And on on that note, um, I, I want to show you guys a clip, a Matt Damon clip, uh, because he has a kind of uh, a related take on this too. Uh, so let's let's watch this, and then I'm gonna get your thoughts. So I think a scenario lots of viewers can relate to is, is sitting on the couch on a Friday night, going through the streaming services, cycling through the movies and, and thinking to themselves, they're not making movies for me anymore. As somebody who's been intimately involved in movie making for 30 years, what are the macro Hollywood conditions behind that sentiment? Well, so what happened was um, 
the DVD was a huge part of our business, of our revenue stream. And technology has just made that uh, obsolete. And so the movies that, that we used to make, you could afford to not make all of your money when it played in the theater because you knew you had the DVD coming behind the release. And six months later, you'd get all, you know, a whole nother chunk. It would be like reopening the movie almost. And when that went away, that changed the type of movies that we could make. I did this movie behind the candelabra when I talked to a studio executive who explained it was a $25 million movie. I would have to put that much into print and advertising, right, to, to market it. Um, who we call PNA, so I'd have to put that in PNA. So now I'm in $50 million. I have to split everything I get with the exhibitor, right, the people who own the movie theaters. So I would have to make $100 million before I got into profit. And, and the idea of making $100 million on a story about like this love affair between these two people, yeah, I love everyone in the movie, but I, it's a, that's, a, that's suddenly a massive gamble in a way that it wasn't in the 1990s when they were making all those kind of movies, the kind of movies that I loved and, and the kind of movies that were my bread and butter. All right. So again, you know, I think that he kind of touches on some of the mm-hmm. same themes that you both were, were bringing up. Mm-hmm. And this sort of raises the question of like, what is, I guess, the relationship of capitalism to art, right? Because there's a lot of truth to what he's saying. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like when I was watching that, I was also thinking like, you know, I... I For example, like, I think that we all can agree that the profit motive and that capitalism undermines art in some very serious ways. But at the same time, like, I don't think you can convince me that, for instance, the social democracies of Scandinavia are necessarily producing better art than Americans, right? I mean, I don't know. Um, Wait, 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 I'll fight you on that. I I know, I know. I knew that Catherine would have something to say. Okay, no, no, no. (laughs) But no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. I mean, by... We, and we should talk about the Scandinavian art in a minute. Um, but but maybe, Eileen, uh, what are your thoughts on on the, the Matt Damon model? Well, I mean, who can blame him? He's in the middle yeah. of it. I mean, I wish he wasn't so self-serious. <laughs> I want to like him so much. And he's just getting more and more pompous every day. But never mind all that. <laughs> um, you know, he's in the midst of, of business models coming up that are that are seem obviously awful. I mean, like I would point to the recent Netflix move to get, you know, big budget franchises that are really mediocre, like Gray Man or Day Shift. And they just throw a lot of Hollywood stars at it to get eyes on it, I guess. And they're pretty terrible. So but this seems to be something that a ton of money is being thrown at as an experiment for how how they can go forward as you know whole theater chains are going into bankruptcy and god knows where we're going to see movies at all outside our homes pretty soon so but on the other hand the whole history of hollywood hollywood is just capitalism like with a capital c so you if you're looking at the whole history of it, good good eras bad eras whatever eras you're always looking at what are the latest ugly commercial choices that anyone who's ambitious is either having to fight or find clever ways to take advantage of or whatever it is, however people are surviving. There, There's a good reason that major political, you know, political film movements rejected Hollywood out of hand. Mm-hmm. Just said that's absolutely what we're not doing in any way. We're not doing production like them or distribution or exhibition. We're, we're doing everything completely non-Hollywood because Hollywood is just <laughs> evil capitalism writ large. So again, it's a little tricky. It's almost a disadvantage to know film history because you're just like this thing again. <laughs> you know, it's another <laughs> bad business model that kills art. It's always been. Catherine, 
Any any um, thoughts on Matt Damon? <laughs> um, no, I mean he's like playing the beautiful soul. It's it's okay. I I think it is interesting what he's saying. I think it's more the DVD probably um, killed art. You know the small art house cinema that Eileen and I used to go to. I mean, you're probably too young, but there were there were movie theaters when we were young that you know would run like say an Almodovar film for six months, mm -hmm. and it would build word of mouth, and they knew that they could make the money because people would go see um, Law of Desire and then tell their friends to go see Law of Desires at the Thalia. But you know we know what happened to that kind of um, platform. The thing that I wanted to say was like making good art is incredibly hard. It's yeah. also incredibly rare. And um, there's no guarantee that in any social democracy, you're going to have like good art necessarily. But once again, I'm going to come back to it. Do what does it matter if mm -hmm. people are able? I think it's much more important that artists are able to make a living and yes. live without catastrophizing, you know, without like fear of medical catastrophe or something. But I'm thinking of two different moments where really, really good art was made. And um, they're almost like historically contingent moments. Um, the French New Wave in the late 50s to early 60s and the Taiwanese New Wave in mm -hmm. the 80s to the 90s. Mm -hmm. And if you look at how much those schools of um, film actually changed filmmaking, um, you'll see that a lot of the decisions that were made was because they didn't have enough money. There were lots of um, things that, but well, one of the things that also was really powerful was that there was affordable urban housing. There was an explosive economic growth. There was incredible optimism in the middle class, even as France was being integrated into the global economy. Taiwan is being integrated in the global economy. And you have enough like surplus um, profit for these young middle class, they're mostly men, to live and talk about films, to actually live it. Um, one of my favorite things about Ho Xiaoxian's interviews about that time was that one, he was friends with a bunch of writers and um, um, other filmmakers, and they didn't really know what they were doing. He was making really commercial stuff for television. And then when he got a 16 to 35 millimeter camera, he said, you know, we, we had to do one take because I didn't have enough film. I couldn't mm -hmm. afford film. And so that and I, he said i would just set up the camera at the end of an alley and let things you know happen as people moved in and out of the frame that became like you know his long take is like one of the great aesthetic achievements it's a tribute to ozu and everyone can mm -hmm. say all these great things about it but when you read it about it it was really about constraint improvisation and also like just his trusting this community of artists who were also actors writers mm -hmm. who were also actors so you have this kind of like incredible synergy and everyone says now, you know, that's over. And the young Taiwanese filmmakers themselves are like, oh, we're so tired of hearing about those people. But, and, you know, we're doing something new. They're making more sort of both like, I would say, you know, um, politically correct cinema, but also more blockbustery cinema um, with the exception of a few pioneers. But that moment has gone. And there's a lot of resentment of the fact that that moment has disappeared. Um, 
But the material conditions of that has to do with like the French National Film Board supported French productions mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the 50s and 60s. And they there was a quota system about what could be shown in theaters. The Taiwanese, it was called the China Picture Company, corporate mm -hmm. Chinese Picture Corporation. The Taiwanese government supported filmmaking mm -hmm. and also supported um this is really interesting the bringing in of films to theaters in taipei because they wanted to show the world that taipei was a modern city mm -hmm. and so one of the things to do was to build city build film theaters and also import a lot of films and so uh, and support local filmmakers right. so this is also that that was a critical aspect of how these groups of young people could actually afford to sit around all day and talk about a movie, develop a script, you know, um, get on the shoot. Sorry. So that was a really long answer to your no, question. That, yeah, no, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think is, I think is right that uh, kind of a welfare state and arts funding and support from the government, it's not that it necessarily produces good art. It just produces more art. And I'm sure there are like a ton of bad, like Taiwanese new wave movies that we don't watch anymore, you know, that also came out of that time period. Uh, but it also, produced uh you know Siming Liang. So well and yeah if I could just add a couple of points. Yeah. I don't quite understand the whole what does it matter about art when we're talking longingly about <laughs> if only there were the conditions to create great I'm baffled. So that I've spent my whole life longing for the Bohemias that I missed and that I don't see. <laughs> um, so there's that. But there's also this equation of art with art house cinema and independent film. And maybe because I was in independent film, I don't feel nearly as reverent. I saw just mm -hmm. as much god awful formula crap, coming of age dramas, stuff it, as I have seen, you know, in supposedly formula Hollywood filmmaking or commercial right. filmmaking internationally. I love a lot, so many of those films. I think there was so much of people producing great art in genres. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't think I like that split. Right. Oh. No, no, I yeah. agree. No, Eileen, thank mm. you for the corrective. I don't mm -hmm. have this like t terrible reverence for it. Mm. I, I teach your genre book. I love genre <laughs> film. I, t I teach <laughs> genre film all the time. Um, I'm just talking about like moments when there was Absolutely. what I thought really good films that were being made, mm -hmm. you know, in a, in a mass in a small group of people i think that's really important so why do i say like what does good culture matter mm -hmm. of course it matters to people like us mm -hmm. but i'm talking about like in the bigger picture mm -hmm. like that shouldn't be our priority at this point the culture is so bad right now um mass and art how cinema i people love steve mcqueen i loathe those films i know it's a horrible cancel me now oh, do you but yeah i do small acts i i hated that whole series but it's because in a way um i feel like a lot of both mainstream and art cinema and you're absolutely right about this um Eileen, and mm -hmm. um, I tend to go in that direction, so you pull me back. But mm -hmm. they think of, um, if we think of film as the medium then, and it ha it's in prose, it's in every single um, cultural medium right now, they think of it, the cultural medium, as a message carrier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And so for me, this is my, you know, old formalist thing that aligns with genre. Mm -hmm. I don't want art to be a carrier of a message. Right. I wanted to have formal cohesion mm -hmm. and actual historical knowledge about its genre. Mm -hmm. There are so many people coming out of MFA programs and in, in the United States, especially who don't read, 
I mean, they admitted this on Twitter. There's a whole like really funny Uh-oh. thread about it. But it's like you, it, like I don't have time to read, and it's so ableist to say that people who are writers should be readers because I have ADHD or something. And I'm like, oh my god, we're producing a generation of people who are, um, or it's been generations like this already where you don't have any respect for historical precedents. So in that way, I'm pretty nerdy. I mean, one of, but one of the things I love about the Coen brothers is every film you watch of theirs is steeped in film. Yeah. And so, and film knowledge. And, but you don't have to have any of it to appreciate them. But the more you know, the more deeply appreciative you are of their films. So mm-hmm. um, yes, it matters to us. But yes. should it matter in the larger world? I'm not sure. And mm-hmm. two... Like, if you think of your film as a carrier of a message, I don't want to see it. Right. No, I just don't want to. I, I, I do want to get into this idea of the film as a carrier of a message, mm-hmm. uh, because obviously this is a political show and mm-hmm. this is something that comes up a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but before that, I, I something that I think uh, you both have been talking about is uh, counterculture, right? Uh, or I mean, rather, our our conversation has been, I think, mostly focused on mass culture, but how do you guys see counterculture and or subculture as operating right now? Um, And Mm -hmm. I I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, someone like Thomas Frank sort of points out that there's always been a kind of deep entanglement between corporate culture and counterculture, Mm -hmm. uh, more of an entanglement than people like to think. Mm -hmm. Um, But on the other hand, you know, I think that we still have a lot of people on the left who see building counterculture and artistic counterculture as as an important project. Uh, And maybe this gets at the kind of division between, you know, the mainstream movie and the art house movie, if such a division really even uh, is that stable. Um, so so what is the role of counterculture today? Or maybe like the larger question is, does does such a thing exist, right? Does it? It's... <laughs> you tell me, Catherine. You're probably keeping no, up more. No, is I, there I, one? <laughs> I, feel like, I, I feel like it's all become like niche markets. Counterculture yeah. is just a niche market. Mm-hmm. And is that because of the internet <laughs> follow up? <laughs> Oh, that's mm. oh one. Uh, that's one possibility, mm. but it's also because of the unaffordability, the new economy, mm-hmm. the unaffordability of urban places. Like you know, Eileen and I were both drop kicked out of New York, out of like the Bohemian Utopia. Mm-hmm. Look at Williamsburg. It looks mm. like Berlin. Berlin wants to be Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. There's this thin crust of like internet Bohemia, you know, new economy mm. Bohemians that um, travel the world on this very thin crust of um, uh, marketing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's grim, but... Yeah, it's just hard to see how... I, I, oh, I, I hate to get into any kind of... How can you blame anyone? There's just how to get a footing, how to get any traction, how to build any kind of a, of a sizable audience is, mm-hmm. is the question. Um, it, People, yeah, there's so much niche. There's so many people who, this is already passe, but my godsons used to try to persuade me to watch YouTube just by the hour. <laughs> and I right. never could get it. It was a true generational break. I was just like, yeah. I, but I'll occasionally see something, but I don't know how you can spend hours and hours and hours. And for me, that was really about the loss of form and a certain, as you were mentioning, Catherine, and a certain, a certain idea of what art would be or could be. It, there has to be some sort of reverence for form. <laughs> and when in an era where there seems to be none, and I'm just going by my my most, you know, I'm retired now, but teaching at Berkeley in the film department, my last years were just 
it was it was hopeless practically and i'm a pretty good teacher but all the stuff that i used to always concentrate on you know like the basics of cin cinematography editing i'd have my peers fellow you know teachers saying i hear you teach things like about cinematography and stuff do you do that <laughs> and i'd be like you don't do that don't you mention the angle the lighting the color scheme the, the editing the, and no and the answer would be no so there's a kind of loss of investment in the very idea, I think, even mm -hmm. among those who are claiming, this is my field of study, this is what I care about. And as for the history, forget it. When I was an undergraduate getting into film, I already knew it. <laughs> we all, the, my friends and I prided ourselves on, on having strong opinions on <laughs> different figures of silent cinema. We were already ready, we were there. We were that last generation that really, mm -hmm. really bought into an investment in cinema that was like that. The students I was teaching, it almost never happened by the end. It just mm. wasn't a thing. It was people who liked films of their own era that were mainstream and, and really, even in a film studies program, were much more interested in some form of production. God knows how they were going to ever get into it. It's a more and more yeah. impossible for, field to enter. Um, so, yeah. so there's a breakdown on so many levels that as I was trying to grapple with some of the questions we were addressing, I was just like, I don't even know where to begin. Right. <laughs> Yeah. I'm going to have to ask Jen what she means as a young person. Tell me, what do you mean? Well, maybe yeah. now let's go back to this question of like the film as like a carrier of a message, right? Because like that's a really can big I, can thing. Can I just oh, intervene yeah, sorry, that sorry. a little yeah, bit yeah, in response, go, 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 go. Raylene? Mm -hmm. I mean, because she, you know, um, brought me off my art house high horse. I just <laughs> want to say that the one I want to tell you the story about. Mm when I welcomed the new class coming into um, film and media studies. And I said, this is 2017. And I said something like, and here we're going to see a variety of films and they're not going to be the transformers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, I finished the welcome and I was leaving. And one of my, one of the new students came up to me and said, professor Lou, professor Lou, um, this is so exciting. I'm so excited to be here. He was um, an Afro-Caribbean guy from Belize. And he said, but my first film was The Transformers. Transformers that was the first was film I saw. <laughs> and I was so in love with that film. And I, it gave me an idea of what was possible in film. And I dragged my parents to see it. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Of course. <laughs> right. My son loved those films, too. And so I was like okay, well, this is the end, this is your entry. You know, this is yeah. the this is the portal for you to enter into, and, and he was like one of our best students, you know, real, became a real cinephile. So I don't want to be like, oh my God, these young people, they know nothing. I know where it's very, like, you know, Grandpa Simpson, old man yells at clouds. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to do that. I don't that want to do that. Do. That was a real lesson. Yeah. Like for me, that was a real like, um, um, teach, uh, what do you call it? learnable moment or whatever teachable moment? Teachable moment. moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it still does leave open a question of like what? I mean, I guess this is a, a segue, but what do we want to teach in in film programs? Right, right. There, which have proliferated all over the landscape to a mad to a mad degree. I mean, what what even is the curriculum? It seemed to be breaking down pretty strongly as I was leaving, at least in my own opinion. But again, mm -hmm. I'm old school. 
Yeah. Well, maybe you could talk a little bit about how it was breaking down um, and mm. whether it relates to this other thing that, you know, has come up, which is this idea that uh, the the film should be a carrier of a message and also that mm. the, the, you know, cultural production is like an important site of political struggle or something. Oh, my God. that It was <laughs> it just got harder and harder to. Not to not to present the same lesson plans mm -hmm. and try to get the same discussions going, but to to get any interest, to get yeah. past glazed eyes, which again, I I prided myself on being a very passionate and entertaining uh, professor. <laughs> so it was getting very hard by the end. I mean, w one of the things I noticed that I hardly knew how to address an investment in plot like I had never seen in my hmm. life. Mm -hmm. and, and analysis for many students had become more details of the plot. And to try to get that shift over to, no, it's not what is being presented, like endless story, 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 story points, mm -hmm. but how it is being presented given the nature of the medium, blah, blah, blah. You got to start more from there to try to arrive. And it was getting harder all the time. And I think that has matched a lot of at least, you know, what we see in TV series is just that the... the, the the, the binge the binge experience mm -hmm. and certainly I can get into it heaven knows is front loading absolute tons of plot which is yeah. you know stranger things is that's what it is it's just just such a an insane glut of plot mm -hmm. that when you're done you can't remember any of it or at least I can mm -hmm. so there was a phenomena of moving not even to the old thing Susan Sontag complained about in against interpretation we're digging past form to content and meaning as if that's the art. And she's like, you don't dig, for the form is the art. Um, so that was her you know, big complaint, which she was writing in the early 60s and hoping film would be spared, which is pretty funny, that analytical process, which it wasn't. Um, so that definitely had become my experience even as early as, as grad school, I was finding. Oh no, people are not interested. It, they were telling me essentially you should be a film critic, I think, because you don't belong in the academy. And they were so right. Um, because I was not interested in particularly in high theory. And I certainly wasn't interested in digging for, in digging into, you know, cinema as symptomatic of the what ails the culture and all mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. at least not as a rule. Yeah. So that was, just a huge dominant phase for me but even as i but as i was leaving i was finding that the, there was even a shift away from that theory the whole grand narrative theory as everyone knows started to break down mm -hmm. 90s and, and 2000s um and fall apart as a dominant mode of, of of you know pedagogy and you got again you got into this strange the investment in plot is so enormous that it's like that's where the art is. <laughs> so if you've ever talked to anyone who's very invested in the Marvel Comics universe, that's what you will hear. It's uh -huh. just so much plot you can't even believe. Right. And and it's all in this intense, and then so-and-so is still mad about what happened in the Civil War, <laughs> right, right. and therefore blah, 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 blah. And it's incredible, the investment. The investment is wild. Yeah. So again, I'm doing old man yells at cloud. Sorry, but it was just a very striking thing in my last couple of years of teaching because it was it was getting very very intense. Not like every student, but it is a kind of dominant mode of ways of looking at film that they were coming in with students more and more. I was up against new new phenomena that I wasn't quite sure what to make of. Catherine, any additional thoughts on how film criticism or film analysis has changed? Mm -hmm. Film now. Um just this is all like war stories, but um, <laughs> there was one year when I realized while I was teaching that 
none of my students read any film criticism. Yes. Oh. We at Ever. That's right. And it was like, oh, wow. <laughs> that, that really, um, that was really enlightening. But I do want to say one thing, like, mm. I feel so much more comfortable teaching film now because I used to teach, I mean, I grew up in an immigrant household. We were media deprived. So I always felt like I was very, very behind on cinema. And mm. there, were, there would always be one person in my class who like ran a, um, video store and they'd be like well did you see this film in 1933 by blah 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 <laughs> right mm -hmm. did you know that dean stockwell was a child actor in 1957 blah, 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 blah. and i'd be like no and so i feel really disempowered so yay internet i'm that populist person too which is like what but there was there was this kind of like obscure knowledge thing from the like um video the um video rental store guy that i hated on some deep level but they felt like they own film and so now no one really owns the moving image anymore mm -hmm. um and that in a way is very liberating so i do want to say that um i the going back to the thing about the YouTube streaming, mm -hmm. you know what's so interesting was that there was this moment when people were like, "Oh, this is like avant-garde cinema again. It's short cinema. It's mm -hmm. like um, demanding different kinds of attention." I'm like, "Oh my god!" Because I grew, you know, I raised a young man during this period of time. I'm like, "Really? You're gonna?" like my academic colleagues, I was like, you're going to say like, this is querying the narrative or whatever, <laughs> or, you know, avant-garde, the avant-garde is on YouTube now. Like, have you ever actually just sat there for eight hours <laughs> yeah. watching someone play a video game and listening <laughs> to like the jokes they're making? It is entertaining. Like I can see what it's, but there's no like formal integrity anymore. So I actually think there's like a polarized, like liberal superego thing making, mm -hmm. um, uh, media a vehicle for their messages like mm -hmm. pounding our heads with a mm -hmm. two by four yeah. about yeah. Um, um the correct line on things and then there's this incredible production content production that is just all about like um creating just provocation reaction also um you know shared spaces of fantasy that come out of DD &D. it's very male it's where you know some 4chan alt lights mm -hmm. um culture comes out of but it's like there are two different streams of um audiovisual production right now and they almost don't have anything to do with each other and um maybe that's where the real counterculture is now mm. which we don't really want to think about which is is the streamer world mm -hmm. it's the difficult to watch um demands commitment um demands initiation creates a uh, clear inside and outside and that's mm -hmm. what uh, countercultures are it certainly so. seems to me that it's wherever i'm not is what's happening <laughs> in my lifetime i have seen everything i have loved or invested in creator it's been amazing i've always been <laughs> too late to oh i literally went to work for francis coppola's company at the worst moment where he does <laughs> everything oh, <yeah>. <laughs> and, <laughs> and literally somebody first told me you know we used to just have the most the greatest parties like legendary parties but everyone got hooked on cocaine we all went to rehab there will be no parties <laughs> and it was just like it was literally so you came in after the cocaine wave. After, at the end of the I 80s. Was our, I think we, it was our generation. Like, we always felt like we were just after everything uh, and just before. But think about know, it. If you were economy. after journalism, it 
was dying. If you wanted to be like me, I desperately wanted to be like a Pulp Fiction novelist that was, of course, long gone, and then publishing itself just, just completely fell apart. Yeah. Uh, the Academy. I get there. They're like, oh, don't worry. There's going to be a million great jobs when all the professors retire. Well, they never replaced those jobs. They all got farmed right. out to adjunct. <laughs> so at every turn, I have... <laughs> so this is the bitterness and cynicism of my life in the dumpster fire. <laughs> so I'm sorry, because I've always been assuming... There, somewhere somebody's having a great time and there's really creative stuff going on. It's just not where I am. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I have to admit that. That's, I'm yes. sure, going on. Yeah, well, um, that kind of goes back to my first question about, yeah. you know, is that just endemic to every generation that they think, mm -hmm. like, the generation or the half generation that came before mm -hmm. them, like, had it better? I'm not mm -hmm. sure. <laughs> I think, Maybe. yeah. Uh, yeah, hmm, that's a good one. Hmm. I, I do think that um, there has been an acceleration of... Mm -hmm. um, professional managerial class liberalism mm -hmm. taking over the culture industry and mm -hmm. making it an arm of its propaganda mm -hmm. indoctrination arm. I would agree. And that means true. like on from zero dark 40 to um, Godzilla versus King Kong. <laughs> right, um, right. It's Batman. It's Jurassic Park. I mean, it's really, yeah. really coordinated. Yeah. And even like the more, the recent, um, the rings of power. It's a really core. It's a group of people who are professionally trained, who are going, who went through graduate school um, in MFA programs or or MBAs, quants now, who um, want to streamline the production and the consumption of culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it has an agenda. It's it's an anti left. You know, we could say anti extremist pro-U.S. imperialism, pro-identity politics um, propagandizing, and it works. Mm -hmm. And everything is like, you know, oh, yeah, I've been watching The Sandman. And, you know, it's all like extremely enlightened on the level of interracial relations, on the level right. of queer relations, on the level of, you know, um, um, non-gender conforming characters. But the actual here, I'm going to say something against um, Eileen is that the actual mm. plot itself is completely uninteresting. <laughs> all about the presentation of these personae who are enacting this new way of being, the new tolerant um, professional managerial class curated notions of diversity and pluralism. And for your human resource department mm -hmm. in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. It's basically like the video that they should show in training um, with some like really, I love Neil Gaiman actually, with some Neil Gaiman-esque supernatural elements. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if, if I could just put in a plea for art though, like it does seem to me, you're right, I think that's exactly, or like one of the main things that has occurred that has tamped down anything that's a kind of the extremist reaction that seems to me makes total sense and would get us somewhere toward an art that we, we have no way of expressing what we're in right now. Mm -hmm. We're we're not just thinking we're in end times like many, many generations before us. Yeah, we yeah, pretty yeah. well know we are. Yeah. And yet there is no corresponding, at least that I know, certainly not in cinema that I'm seeing, that is really reflecting the extremity of what our circumstances are. And surely if art is worth anything, it's worth that. Mm -hmm. it, that's what it could do for us. Because when your so, imagination is failing, you want someone to come along and say, this is what we're in. This is what it, this is what our experience is. This is what it looks like. This is what the form of it is. And we don't have that. And it seems incredible to me. How bad does it have to get? before there's enough of a reaction to get like 
furious raging art going. I don't well, know. I think it it does exist in some way in heart in the horror genre. Mm -hmm. I saw well, you were describing what you were describing. Um, Eileen actually like reminded me of this horror short that I saw um, because online because it was in the middle of the pandemic and it was made by um, a young woman whose name escapes me now. But um, it was a short about mm -hmm. how this woman had these. Um, unidentifiable internal pains, you know, very much like, you know, yuppie exhaustion mm. syndromes is before right. long COVID, right? She's always going to the doctor. And the only thing that brings her relief is um, posting these horrible things online on other people's content, like just being a horrible troll, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so she'll go through these like stomach spasms and then like post something like, you should kill yourself on YouTube to some YouTube maker. And at the end of the film, she's um, she's in the bathroom. She's throwing up, and she's you know um, you know nothing she's doing is making anything better. And she's been to all these like new agey healers, and finally you know she's detoxifying and she throws up an iPhone. She like literally <laughs> gives birth to an iPhone, and she's like she feel she's like holding this bloody thing in her hand like like it's her baby. And I, I thought. Wow, that really did get to the moment where we are at. So, mm -hmm. um, I think horror is a genre that is popular and both really extreme. I haven't seen I haven't seen any recent horror films, but I do hold out um, hope for that. It's a, it's a very youth oriented genre too. Very, like, so um, twenty four, and you know, yeah, bodies, bodies, yeah. bodies, which I yeah. hated. Is trying to make uh, <laughs> oh, the bodies, horror. Bodies, yeah, bodies. I never review. saw that. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. I will, I will say one, one, one recent horror movie that I thought was really good was Ty West's movie X. Uh, oh, which but I it's, seen. Well, I, I would be curious mm -hmm. to hear your thoughts, but it's kind of a period piece, you know? So there is that sort of, it, it's very like Texas Chainsaw kind mm -hmm. of uh, mm -hmm. uh, inspired, uh, you know, group of teens goes out to the countryside and mayhem ensues. Mm -hmm. And it's very explicitly a period piece. Uh, mm -hmm. It's set in the 70s. So okay. again, there's th that kind of uh, element of, you know, an era past or something mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay yeah. yeah yeah okay good but like that, that's no but that's a great example is there yeah. anything that's as powerful a vision of what was happening in the 70s as leatherface holding right. up that chainsaw right. and i would argue no because <laughs> we'd all all know it now and there's just that's what i mean yeah. to watch the I mean, first I'm... texas chainsaw is just to be like this is disturbing because it's too it's too raw. It's too gritty. It's yeah. too. It was. That's a. That's a great film. Yeah. <laughs> I can still remember what, it so vividly. You know what else was a great uh, film is Night of the Living Dead. That was like such a, a 1968. That was just such an incredible. Like this is what I'm talking. Where are these films that are just mm. like sear into your brain mm -hmm. and then that never people are be able screaming to screaming about? Mm. Like, what's a recent example of something critics were screaming about? The Joker. I went back to read my this piece I did about critics are just having a cow. There's going to be riots in every theater. There oh, are going right. to be mass yeah. killings. You know, oh, it went on and on. Of course, absolutely nothing happened. Right. How yeah. about Nope? I haven't seen Nope. I haven't yet. seen that either. I actually no. loved it, but I think it's left a lot of people behind. I, uh, I've yeah. been reading mm -hmm. like it's literally incomprehensible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, oh, wow. I really adored it for complex reasons that I don't know if I should go into here since you guys haven't seen it. It would have to be yeah. major. But, well, I want to see it. I want to. But you know what? I don't actually consume serious cinema because mm -hmm. all I do is stream. Like at the I end know. of a long yeah. day, 
at the end of a long day. I don't go to the movie theater. I don't have like a, you know, um, a ritual anymore because of COVID. And so I'm like, give me the dumbest, you know, eye garbage that I can watch so I can get through this evening so I can get up and work tomorrow morning. Yeah, and right now I'm not watching that much. I Okay, The Rings of Power is truly horrible. But I'm I'm gonna watch it and then House of the Dragon, yeah, which is like actually okay, yeah, which is actually okay. But it's a little bit eye garbage and it's very yeah, plot driven, yeah. as Eileen said. And I'm yeah. like, I'm not sitting there going being ravished by the cinematography or anything. It's like extremely predictable lighting, extremely, mm -hmm. you know, Absolutely. extremely composed, but also mm -hmm. like rather bland. Um, there are beautiful performances though. I do mm -hmm. have to say. So I sit there. I'm like. Okay, oh, there's wonderful that. stuff like the bear. I rave and rave, and I thought I loved uh -huh. it and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I like that but one too. I will just again another old man yells at cloud. Please, <laughs> yeah. one thing that is missing that is almost impossible to recapture in your in your home theater or viewing, no matter how grand <laughs> you make it, the drama of the exhibition of cinema in its traditional sense. It just has it, <laughs> or it used to. I don't know that people really feel it anymore. I always did. My my friends and I went to the movies just to go we would see all sorts of crap knowing it was probably gonna yeah. be crap but it was just like oh, oh we are in the theater yeah, the lights yeah. have gone down that magic beam has come up it's just like it's already kind of exciting there's something exciting about the circumstance and of course seeing so many movies is so augmented by the crowd experience people know that that's a cliche but it has a kind of profundity that we've also just gone but the hell with it other than you know you will see a few things in imax you know major action films major superhero well, films i guess you know that when Guy Debord wrote you know society of the spectacle mm. he said the spectacle separates us mm -hmm. all right i mean but this was still like early 60s paris so people were still going to the movie theaters and right. together each mm -hmm. having their separate uh, experiences but together yeah. and then the 68 student rebellion happens because they're gonna threaten the government is threatening to close down a cinema tech right. so like that togetherness is really important mm -hmm. like the separation that the board was talking about is like 100,000 times yeah more extreme and because we all each get our personal news feed so nobody mm -hmm. reads the same news articles mm -hmm. we all see uh, our twitter feeds are you know if you're really old you're on facebook but i guess your instagram feeds i don't even know um what they're doing on instagram but um your tiktok feed mm -hmm. everyone has a particular curated algorithmically curated feed and then you're watching things alone Mm -hmm. And I had students spend two years of their lives watching things alone and then watching me. Mm -hmm. And there was this craving for togetherness. And so we, when we first got together and then like the pandemic, the COVID numbers would go up and then we'd be back in our homes again. And I almost feel like COVID was like really well designed for streaming media and the corporate uh, monopolization of content mm -hmm. production because you don't want people really getting together. You don't want people having collective experiences when you're a big capitalist. So you want everyone to be alone and having this information being pumped out to them. Mm -hmm. So the thing that, or, or you know, just uh, content pumped out to them. The one thing I have to say about like the streamers and the YouTube mm -hmm. things is they do build a kind of community and they have that like, you know, the um, live stream um, right. responses. Right. So you have a very controlled way of having these live stream responses that mm -hmm. are still mediated by the, you know, screen, but um, um, we're more separated than ever. Mm -hmm. And 
I and that is like the real end time situation for me, Eileen. Like I would love to see someone make art out of that because mm -hmm. I think about that all the time. I think about how lonely people are, how um you want to share your thoughts because it's lonely. I'm lonely. You know, I, would, and I, I would say Michael Haneke makes movies about that. He does. Yeah. And they're so fucking dark. Yeah. Um yes, <laughs> yes, he does. He's yeah, and, you're and right. Because I have to say, because right. the co the movies that were about the COVID experience, at least the ones I saw that came out, I found yeah. very disappointing. Which one? Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Kimmy by by Steven Soderbergh. That one. Oh, uh, oh my God, that was horrible. It was, it was that was so like weak. about COVID. Well, it was she was agoraphobic and couldn't go up. But I think there, yeah, there was still the masking was happening. And oh so yeah, she was yeah. No, no, it was about there was some unidentified. Yeah. Oh my God, that was just a piece. But of, it was just. Yeah. So and I love Soderbergh. Yeah, no, he's done great, bad. great things. But this just seemed like a, a real, a real whiff. And I saw a couple of other things that weren't even at that level. And I just thought, you're, yeah, you're not somehow getting at it. And I mean, and Kimmy's life looks so great for one thing. She's you know this massive tech wizard and has an incredible she's loft in apartment shape. set up. And she's, she's never perfectly gained, gorgeous. She's never gained a single pound sitting in front of her computer 24 7. So like, everything what's your about diet girl? That's what <laughs> exactly. I want to know. Exactly. So that was really disappointing how no one could get a grip. I mean there was that terrible thing set in the hotel about it was about the Jurassic Park 4 what? experience. Oh what was the name <laughs> of it? It was so bad. It ran on Netflix, I think. It was absolutely atrocious. It was as a comedy. It just it was the weakest comedy I've ever seen. So, you know, two years after we all did the like the first swabbing, it was yeah. making a huge deal about like, oh, swabbing's horrible, and you're like, man, you're so late. Yeah, we're everyone's right. <laughs> done. <laughs> so it's that kind of toothlessness that I think I find most maddening. Yeah. Um, Remember how afraid yeah. we were of people? Like I was oh, thinking yeah. about zombie movies. Like everyone's a point of infection. Like yeah. where's our twenty eight days later? Like yeah. you're walking down the street and you're just terrified of the yes. other that they're going to like sneeze on you or something. Absolutely. I mean, it was so it was so extreme, and it like fed into every mm -hmm. um, upper middle class fantasy about mm -hmm. like cleanliness and and control control mm -hmm. like. Oh my God! This is I, I want someone to make this movie because mm. I'm I'm just too busy. But me too, and, really, and it's frustrating I'm, not to be able to think of what it should be. But part of no, the problem no. is so it's I have an idea. I have an idea because this is this happened on my list of I live in this um, um, university like affiliated neighborhood of like mm. twelve hundred households, and in the middle of the pandemic, there was an ad for a job like we need a mother's helper um they're both md phds both working at home um please join us in our quarantine pod we have two children two and four we'll pay very well um immunocompromised welcome we won't want to have any contact with other people you have to buy by our covid um protocols because we are immunocompromised and i thought oh my god that's the perfect horror oh, movie yeah, like they if you have a, they definitely lock that nanny in the basement oh, yes that's... and you have like i had this whole idea that they were going to be a um white asian couple md phds <laughs> and um a young working class latino yeah. woman with maybe at latina with asthma comes in and says you know she's got all these student loan debts and they're like oh my god we'll help you pay mm -hmm. that you don't have to pay rent and then like the kids are creepy. There's yeah. actually a basement. Mm -hmm. Like that is the the 
Jawbat was a horror movie. Mm -hmm. Jawbat. I mean, right. I don't think it's legal to employ people that way. Twenty-four-seven, <laughs> trapped in your house, right. like that. Literally, is chattel slavery, but it was the middle of the pandemic. Right. And they were obviously desperate to find childcare because mm -hmm. they're like making all this money and they're doing their email job. I don't know how you do like MD PhD stuff on email, but maybe you're, you've got your experiments running and you're just doing this on the computer and so they're dying because they have two to four uh, two and a four-year-old right mm -hmm. and, it, and there's no child care they've got these high-powered jobs make all this money and they're immunocompromised they're terrified of covid so what do you want to do absorb the help right. into your mm -hmm. pod right oh, that is that's good. fucking <laughs> horrifying that right that's yeah. the scary that's yeah. a cabin in the woods that mm -hmm. is um night of the living dead like mm -hmm. everything is in there so mm -hmm. please somebody out there yeah make there this you go. movie because <laughs> i've got too much on my plate <laughs> I, but i will love this movie to death <laughs> and it's california subdivision yeah oh, of course that of is course. perfect yeah <laughs> um all right well look i think we should wrap up but i do want to first get to this question about politics right mm. because eileen you you had mentioned the joker and oh, yeah. um i don't know if you guys saw but the mm -hmm. uh the joker director todd phillips mm -hmm. um a while back or i think you know when he was doing the kind of press tour for that movie right. he talked a lot about how he thought wokeness and politics <laughs> was kind of degrading comedy and degrading mm. the cinema yeah. and i sympathetic to like certain aspects of that argument um but but the broader question i wanted to pose to both of you is uh why do liberals lose their minds over pop culture this is something that we've talked about on the show before mm -hmm. and i think we touched on it eileen when you came on uh mm -hmm. last year but uh you know to 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 go back to something that you had brought up catherine like Liberal liberal commentators are obsessed with pop culture and they're obsessed with it in a very specific way, which is that the film should be a carrier of a, a good message, right? Yes. And that usually takes the form of like, we need more superheroes of X color, more women superheroes. Mm -hmm. uh, and this, this film needs to be sort of uplifting and inspiring for, you know, X marginalized group. Mm -hmm. uh, why, why did liberals suddenly glom onto pop culture in this way? That's a good question. Catherine, you grab that one. Okay. No, I have <laughs> no. no idea. And then, of course, um, follow up is wokeness they, ruining everything. <laughs> <laughs> they need a control. They need to control everything. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Well, there's there. You could say there was a long kind of left liberal history. Sure. Yeah. That sure they lost the um, as far as like the post-war blacklist. They lost in many ways, but they did manage to get certain types of content made that made it seem like they won the culture wars, right? right? You know, the To Kill a Mockingbirds, et cetera, many, many films of uplift um, mm -hmm. um, of a certain type that we can kind of recognize. And I think that that's partly how the the raging right can always say the left has won. Right. Even though that's we're the, like, we won. No, no, <laughs> yeah, no, no. I think uplift is the thing that's yeah. really important here. Yeah. They're part of that progressive Victorian elite and progressive era thing about how we have to uplift people. Mm -hmm. Like people are basically like downtrodden children. And we are an elite who have to produce things that lift them up. Mm -hmm. And that is just, it's condescending. It's about mm -hmm. exercise of yeah. power. 
Yeah. It really is about an ex, and I think it's about ideological control. Mm -hmm. Like there might have been a moment when mm -hmm. um, high culture really created a kind of aspirational thing where you could be. There was a moment where you could be like just a yeah. horrible person but make good art, right? Mm -hmm. And they're mostly men, like Jackson Pollock peeing in somebody's um, fireplace when he's uh, invited to a party. William Burroughs, you know, becoming a drug addict in Morocco and then in Tangier and then writing these books. There's the counterculture, the high culture thing can make these I, these heroes out of artists that are just bad boys. I'm not sure that's good necessarily. Are but artists there was ever good? Definitely. I, male, female, really? That's not, I never can buy that one. Writers right. aren't. I'm a writer. I but tell. right now, it's like you have to be a good person. Well, yeah, that's too, what I mean. It seems to be able, Yeah. It's a new form of censorship, I think, that's yeah. really powerful because you're constantly trying to cut people out. Yeah, um, there's uh, you're constantly trying to exclude people to try to curate the best culture, and you're a bunch of new economy philistines, and you've read like three books your whole life, one of them being Malcolm Gladwell, <laughs> and then you've decided that you're just going to nudge people with their cultural content, right, and right. Um, it's it's incredible power exercise of power and control. Mm -hmm. And, and there was at least an acknowledgement in the olden days uh, that Eileen and I knew when you could see the artist as a figure out of control, out of your control, mm -hmm. that you could still uh, admire, but um, someone who you could not control. And now it's like, I've got to control everyone. Everyone's going to control me. I am the, uh, everyone's going to be controlled by me. I'm the liberal superego. Mm -hmm. I have money and money will help me curate the, content stream that I want to mm -hmm. uplift the dumb idiots who are consumers from my make list. <laughs> well, it's, it's the Todd Phillips thing was, was interesting. I thought, mm -hmm. because the implication is there was just absolutely bleeding edge, brilliant comedy being done before the woke movement silenced it. I don't remember this to you, <laughs> especially coming out of, you know, the frat pack and stuff. I mean, that's not that people sure, weren't yeah. funny, amusing, yes, fine. But the idea that it's like we're silencing genius voices is, I don't well, know, maybe I missed it. you're thinking more of Richard Pryor, someone like that. Yes. yes. Or George Carlin. But it's I, always it's told in, you know, the protest from people like Todd Phillips is always just tremulous with self-pity. Like here I was doing this before. You know what? I have some sympathy. I actually like Joker more than a lot of people. Oh, oh, I, yeah. lo I yeah. loved it. I thought yeah, it was, I loved we're, it. We're we're it was Joker. <laughs> I know we're very, I know uh, I love Joker, yeah. but I, I, it didn't bring on the uh, mass societal collapse that, no, that um, only <laughs> yeah, capitalism can produce. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. Right. Yeah. exactly. Not a movie. <laughs> Yeah. Um, all right. So final question, mm -hmm. film recommendations from you both. Catherine, you already did Footloose, but if there's anything else that comes to mind, it doesn't have to be a new movie. Oh my Lord. Um, Eileen, maybe, maybe I'll put Well, I think spot. everyone should watch fil film noir. Because mm -hmm. film noir was people coming out of a depression, World War II, and they come out and they're just, there's a willingness to look in the abyss of American culture that is like so weird to think it was happening then and it's not happening now. There's no equivalent of like, you know, let's rip into it. Let's just look at how ghastly and hopeless it is top to bottom and, and try to kind of fathom what what is wrong. I mean, my favorite film noir is so intensely dark 
that after it condemns every level of power, it suggests there's something cosmically wrong. There's got to be something wrong with which, the whole that? universe. Oh, there's oh so many. Oh, I'll have to send you a list of oh, all the oh, film noir okay. where oh, they're oh, oh, people yeah, yeah, are yeah, contemplating yeah. like the yeah. stars yeah. and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I would say, yeah, take a trip back to some. We never seem to go with the greatest things that we have. We always go pick up some god awful trend and run with that. Film noir, we we should never redo it. Neo-noir is usually very, very weak. We need some sort of comparative, annihilating vision that's just willing to look. Look at where we are. And that just isn't in our culture. And it was coming out of Hollywood at the most conventional time. It's an extraordinary thing. Well, to to um, piggyback on that, I do think there was a neo-noir in the mm -hmm. 90s that is worth revisiting. Mm -hmm. um, Curtis Franklin's Devil in a Blue Dress, oh, yeah, based on Walter Mosley's um, mm -hmm. novel about a black um, African-American mm -hmm. um, private, private eye. Walter Mosley's uh, Easy Rollins, yeah. Yeah, Easy Rollins series. I, I think it, it's just incredible and it's so um, contemporary. I don't know why Curtis Franklin didn't make more films. I know he went on to make, you know, work in television a mm -hmm. lot, but I think it was a, it's a really great reprise of a lot of the film noir themes that Eileen just mentioned. The other thing that, the other film that, two films that I, it's like, this is more art housey, but um, Gamora based on Roberto Saviano's oh, yeah. um, book of that name, the television series and the film are some of the most incredible um, realist depictions of poverty and violence in um, Naples. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lesser known film by Jadran Kov that was part of his first series of films before he kind of became a global um, movie um, film director star. Um, and it's called Xiao Wu. And I can send you the, it's X-I-A-O, one word, W-U. And it's about the early days of economic liberalization in a small Northwestern Chinese town. And it is all, it's acted by non-professional actors and it's so gritty, so dark, also very noirish, owes a lot to the noir theme. There's like no way out for these young men who have grown up under one system, very repressive social system, and now live in this kind of like free for all, um, free market world. And one of them becomes an entrepreneur and his best friend becomes like a you know, it's literally a pickpocket. It is impossible to see this in China now because they don't want to tell that yeah. story, but it's a really compelling story of like economic liberalization mm -hmm. and the devastation of the, um, of like people's life worlds. There is nothing nice about this protagonist. Mm -hmm. That's, I love films like that. Me I too. do, I do love films. This protagonist is so awful, <sighs> but you just, and, and you just like are totally compelled by him for like two hours. Yeah. So uh, I let me just, love that. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Yeah, I want to see that. <laughs> yeah. uh, let me yeah. add one contemporary film since I've been so mean about indie films. I'll talk one. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's called Emily the Criminal. And it's, it's a real mm. resuscitation of a kind of what I recall as a kind of 70s level of worker rage. It's all about a, a play, she's played by Aubrey Plaza, mm -hmm. you know, she's late 20s, 30-ish, and she's desperately in debt, and she gets more and more nudged toward credit card fraud, and pretty soon she's a complete convert to, I can't. That sounds great, too. It's good. It's, it's what, is just, it called? It's good. what is it called again? It's called Emily's? Emily the Criminal, and it's Emily just gritty, gritty and just wonderfully done, and we might have an important new filmmaker, John Patton Ford. Mm. It's his debut. Yeah. Well, you Fabulous. heard it here first, folks. Yeah. 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 <laughs>
<laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you both so much for your time. Oh. That was a lot of fun. Uh, we will link Eileen's columns and Catherine's books down below and hopefully see you both soon. Yes. That would All be right. delightful. Take care. Thanks, Thanks. That was really Thanks. fun. Thanks for delightful. having us.